0: <clears throat> there's an interesting question that the disciples ask in verse 10 isn't there why do you speak to them in parables you see matthew chapter 13 marks a rather dramatic shift in the public teaching style and public teaching method uh, employed by jesus up to this point point. and the disciples noticed it on this day as well Which is why they came and said to him, why do you speak in parables? In other words, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, what happened? What's with this change in the way that you're teaching people? Because up to this point in the teaching ministry of Jesus, everything that he had spoken was pretty clear and pretty straightforward. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you'll see Jesus, you'll hear Jesus saying things like, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's pretty clear. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pretty clear. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Pretty clear. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, all of these statements of Jesus are very clear and very direct. Now, To be sure, Jesus did indeed illustrate a number of these commands with word pictures that were designed to help the hearer out. So for example, when Jesus spoke of the necessity of living a life that reveals the character and reveals the goodness of God in you, he illustrated it by saying this in Matthew chapter 5 verses 14 and 16. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and set it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you notice what Jesus did there? He described the scene that everyone could understand, so that the listener would say to themselves, yeah, you know what? It would actually be foolish to light a lamp, only to then put like a basket on it, what kind of fool would do something like that? And then he explained the spiritual significance of the picture. Just as you wouldn't put a lamp under a basket because that is such a foolish thing to do, so also you who love the Lord, you who delight in the Lord, you who, who speak or, or who love and, and serve him, do not conceal that love. Don't hide that love. Don't say, I love the Lord, and then put something over it so that nobody sees it. That's a foolish thing to do. A lit lamp is meant to illuminate a room, just like a follower of Jesus is designed or meant to illuminate the world in which they live. By your open, obvious love for and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you live, Christian, in such a way that everyone around you sees your good works and they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you see, Jesus gives a word picture and then he describes or or tells you what that word picture means. And in the clearest example of a parable in the first 12 chapters of Matthew's gospel, it comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus summed up the entire sermon with these words in chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now hopefully you noted that in both cases of the, the, the parables we've just spoken, whether it's the hiding of a lamp under the basket or these wise and foolish builders, Jesus made a point of explaining the meaning of the parable either directly after speaking it as he did with the light under a bushel or before he spoke it as he did with the wise and foolish builders. You heard it, right? He started this parable by saying, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like. So he explains to you the meaning of what he's about to say. Now I want you to contrast that with the first parable spoken by Jesus in Matthew 13. Jesus goes out stands on the beach, too many crowd. Too many people around, gets in a boat and he simply paints a picture of a sower who goes out sowing seed. And that seed falls on four separate types of ground and then he concludes it with this. He who has ears, let him hear. No explanation, no nothing. Now why? Why would he say something like that and then say to them, he who has ears, let him hear. The meaning of that phrase is, listen, crowds, what you have just heard from my lips is absolutely vital to you. Hear what I've just said. If you have ears to hear, meditate on these words. You had better, crowds, listen carefully to apply these words to your life. But he leaves the crowds to figure out the meaning of these words. Unlike the light under a bushel. Unlike the wise and foolish builders, he simply says, here's some seed, there's a sower went out to sow, seeds fell on different ground, listen! The only explanation that he gives to the parable is when the disciples come and ask him, he explains it to them. So what led to such a strikingly notable shift in Jesus' public teaching ministry? Why the shift from something like the Sermon on the Mount, which is so clear and direct to parables without explanation? See, many think that Jesus made this shift to parables in order to clarify things, to make things easier to understand, easier for the crowds to hear it and to grasp it and to understand it. They think that he spoke with parables to make the spiritual lessons that he preached a lot easier and simpler to appreciate and grasp. But the disciples actually come to Jesus and say, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And the answer that he gives is not so that it makes everything easier for them to hear and understand. In fact, the answer that he gives to the question reveals the exact opposite of that. He spoke in parables in order to conceal the truth from a certain segment of the population. To conceal the truth from the self-righteous, from the self-satisfied, from the self idolater the self-obsessed, the self-trusting, while revealing the truth to all who come to him in humility, who trust in him as a little child trusts their parents, to those who recognize their own brokenness, their own sinfulness, their own inability to solve or work their way out of their most pressing problem. Their separation from God as a result of sin. Parables were designed to conceal the truth from the proud, but reveal it to those who are poor in spirit, to those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, while hiding it from the fool who hates and rejects the Lord Jesus. So you see, while concealing truth from the rebellious, the proud, and the stiff-necked, Parables also serve to reveal truth to those who are desperate for real, true, meaningful relationship with God. And in this sense, the transition from a clear and direct preaching and teaching to the crowds by Jesus constitutes a divine judgment. Parables, this switch from clear teaching to parables, is actually, for some, a divine judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. A divine judgment against those who in their arrogant and foolhardy sense of self-importance reject and rebel against the plain call of Jesus to repent and believe the gospel. Why do you speak to them in parables? Here's the answer if you look at chapter 13 verse 11. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now the answer that Jesus gives to the question that the disciples ask here might make some uncomfortable. Look at it. The truth of it is inescapable. To some it is given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You see that, right? To some it is given while to others it is not. And given, the word given here, carries the sense of granted. To some it has been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Now what does this word secrets mean? That's kind of a a different type of word, isn't it? This idea of a secret is a mystery of the kingdom that refers to a truth that might have been obscure, mysterious, or unrecognized in the Old Testament. It was dim unlit in the Old Testament until the light of Christ illuminated this truth clearly in his life and in his ministry. The secrets of the kingdom here refer to truths obscure in the Old Testament that are revealed and made clear in the person and work of Christ, especially the mystery of God's work in Christ to save sinners. We see this word used a few times throughout the New Testament, this word mystery. Here are a few examples. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, the Apostle Paul writes this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you see it, right? There is a reality that was obscure or dim in the Old Testament to previous generations that has been revealed now to the people who follow and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see it in Romans chapter 11. In chapter 25 and 26, we read this. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. And one more, 1 Timothy 3. There are a number of these in the New Testament. 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, this is Jesus, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory the mystery of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament, they did speak of of God come to us in the flesh, born of a virgin, that he would die, and after three days raised from the dead. The sacrificial system itself pointed in types and in shadows to the reality which is the sacrificial sin-atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are all mysteries, however, that were obscure in the Old Testament that were made clear in the person, work, ministry, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples here when they ask him, why are you speaking in parables? He says to them that some are given the knowledge or the ability to understand these mysteries while others are not. To them, meaning the crowds and the religious leaders, verse 13, 11, Tells us it has not been given. So you see that, right? To some, to you disciples, it has been given. To them, it has not been given. So, in this context, the disciples are granted or given insight into the knowledge of who Jesus is, into the identity of Christ, in a way that the crowds are not, in a way that the Pharisees are not. You see, while the crowds might ponder, as they did earlier on in the last chapter, whether Jesus is the son of David or not. And the Pharisees would say that Jesus drives out demons by the Prince of Demons. The disciples, as we will read in just a few chapters in Mark's Gospel, or Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus asks them, when Jesus asks Peter, Who do do you say that I am, Peter? Peter is the spokesman for the rest of the disciples. And he pipes up, and this is what he said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered to Peter, Or Jesus' response to Peter is quite informative. Listen to what Jesus said after Peter stated the identity of Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So on the one hand, as you read the answer to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see that the knowledge or the secrets of the kingdom are revealed to the disciples but not to the crowds. The knowledge is granted to some and not to others. But at the same time, as you read through the rest of the answer, you will see that the rejection of Christ's call to repentance and belief is also, at the very same time, the product of their free refusal to heed his call. Jesus makes it clear. Look at verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear and listen to this, and their eyes they have closed. Their eyes they have closed. Meaning they are culpable. They are responsible for their decision to refuse. They are culpable for their negative response to the call of Jesus Christ. And it is this refusal of the people that led Jesus to almost now exclusively, throughout the rest of his public ministry, speak to the, to the crowds in public using parables. The soil of the crowds and the soil of the Pharisees was hard and unresponsive. It was impenetrable after the Pharisees, it was the impenetrable hearts of the Pharisees that brought about this shift in the teaching of Jesus. This is why Jesus made it clear. Jesus made it clear in verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. You see that, right? Meaning that while they see everything I'm doing with their very own eyes, all the good works of healing, all of the delivering... Delivering of the demon oppressed, works that display the onset of the kingdom of God. They see these deeds with their own eyes, but they cannot see them in the sense of understanding and comprehending their significance correctly. He goes on, he says, And hearing they do not hear. Meaning, while they hear the words of Jesus, the words that Jesus speaks enter into their ear canal and they beat against their eardrums. Hearing they do not hear. Hearing meaning, heeding and responding in obedience to those words. Right? Seeing and hearing in the first instance are the actual physical um, hearing and seeing, and the next is perceiving and understanding, heeding and obeying. Then he says, "They nor do they understand," meaning they have no clue. They cannot grasp it. They won't grasp it. They refuse to grasp and discern the magnitude of everything that they have witnessed and everything they have heard and everything that Jesus has done. Indeed, in their case, he says in verse 14, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now these words come from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, 800 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord commanded Isaiah to speak these very words to the people of Judah and to the people of Jerusalem after commissioning Isaiah to be a prophet to Judah and Jerusalem. But before that commissioning, the Lord had given Isaiah a vision of the state of Judah and the state of Jerusalem. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4, the Lord revealed this or said this to Isaiah, "'Ah, sinful nation!' A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. These words, spoken centuries before Jesus, describe to a T the people of Israel who are standing before Jesus at this moment in His earthly ministry describes to a T the people of Israel during the days of his earthly ministry. A sinful nation, full of iniquity, dealing corruptly, forsaking the Lord. This Israel here and now, the Pharisees here and now, the religious leaders here and now were a people utterly estranged from the Lord in the same way that the people that Isaiah spoke to were utterly estranged from the Lord. And also... Isaiah heard the word of the Lord against the city of Jerusalem, as you read in Isaiah chapter 1, 21 to 23, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. In the same way as it was during the days of Isaiah's ministry, Jerusalem's silver in the days of Jesus had also become dross. The once pure wine of Jerusalem had been cheapened and diluted, metaphorically speaking, by mixing with water. Their leaders and their princes were rebels who loved bribes, who didn't bring justice to the fatherless or plead the cause of the widow. And so the Lord cleansed Isaiah and commissioned him to go to the people of Israel and into that evil generation in which he was to minister. And he sent Isaiah with this message, as you read in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed." You see, this lack of response from the people of Israel, their constant and persistent rejection of Christ's call to repentance, of the Lord's call to repentance, had now led them to this point where Isaiah's commission was not to go into the nation and say, Repent! Repent! It was to go into the nation to make the heart of the people dull. And on hearing this, This is a rather unexpected turn of events for Isaiah. And hearing that this is the message that he was to bring to the people of Israel, he cried out in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 11, How long, O Lord? How long? This is the message that you are calling me to bring? How long? This is not the ministry Isaiah had expected. But now Jesus comes onto the scene, And like Isaiah, he is laboring among a people who embody the very nation that Isaiah had prophesied to. A people who refused to open their eyes, but instead closed them. A people who refused to hear and obey, but instead stopped up their ears to the call of Jesus. A people who refused to ponder, to consider, to strive for greater understanding, which might in turn lead to their repentance and their healing from the Lord. And so Jesus, in very much the same situation as Isaiah, like Isaiah did taught in such a way so as to assist those bent on refusing the Lord in their rebellion. And what precipitated this event? What precipitated this change? It was the events of this very day. You see it right in 13.1. That same day. The transition from direct teaching and parables occurred in response to the episodes that had just previously happened on that same day. So what happened on that day? Well, Jesus encountered the religious elites in Israel, the Pharisees, and he had healed a man, right? If you go back to chapter 12, he had healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue and If you think this all happened on the same day, he also healed a demon oppressed man and brought back his sight. Verse 22 of chapter 12 healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were all excited about this. They were out of their minds. They couldn't believe what they had just witnessed. And they started asking could this be the son of David? And the Pharisees started to work their way in those crowds, slinking around, saying in verse, chap, what we see in chapter 12, verse 25, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They were standing on the precipice, Jesus said, of something absolutely unforgivable. They were so hardened in their rejection of Jesus that at any moment... They could fall into a sin that could, never be, that, that could never recover from. And how did it get to this point? You see, these same religious elites, they were expecting the Messiah. They were longing for Messiah. But baked into their expectation was the assumption or the presumption that when Messiah came, he would cast in his lot or throw in his lot of support with those religious leaders. That he would both agree with and reinforce their long lists of man-made traditions and rules, like those about what was permitted and what was restricted on the Sabbath. But not only would he agree with and support their long list of traditions and rules, but he would also uphold their authority and uphold their status among the peoples as the holy men, as the great representatives of the Lord among the people of Israel." But that's not what happened, is it? When Jesus took on flesh and made his dwelling among us, when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world arrived and began his earthly ministry, he violated almost every single one of their expectations. Instead of supporting their oppressive rules, he challenged them at almost every turn. You remember it, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus denigrated, he disparaged, he criticized the traditions of the rabbis every time he said these words, you have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you, in other words, they're wrong. Don't listen to them on this matter. Listen to me. You see, Jesus was not interested in buttressing or supporting the very structures or groups that laid heavy burdens on people or laid heavy yokes on the people. But instead, he called the people in chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Meaning, don't take their yokes upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But also when it came to anger or adultery or divorce or retaliation or vengeance, Jesus was consistently correcting the errors of the religious leaders. And he also told the crowds to be unlike the Pharisees in the areas of giving and praying and fasting. Jesus continually challenged the self-ascribed authority of the Pharisees and the religious leaders as he claimed for himself authority. In 1241, he said... I am the one who is greater than Jonah. In 1242, I am the one who is greater than the temple. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning it is Jesus who determines the true meaning and the true purpose and the true intention of the Sabbath. Jesus' word is the final word on all matters of faith and practice in the nation of Israel, but not only in the nation of Israel, in the whole world. These claims made by Jesus angered the religious establishment because this religious establishment gripped with night white knuckle fierce intensity to their position and their status over the people of israel and so they worked to keep christ from assuming his rightful position as king over the people they worked among the crowds to keep the people from seeing that this could very well be this in fact is the son of david the king of the jews and their opposition only increased. Why? Because they feared losing their status in Israel. And this is something they actually made crystal clear in John eleven forty eight. 48. Many of the Jews who had been witnessing the works of Jesus actually gathered together because the average Jew had begun believing in Jesus. So the Pharisees and the chief priests gathered together to kind of discuss what their plan was going to be about this. And in John 11:48, 48, they ask this question, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you see their main concern here? The Romans are going to come and take away our place. If the people turn to Jesus, the Romans will come and rob us of our position and rob us of our status. We cannot have that. These religious leaders, as we've noted over the last few months, they could not have cared less whether Jesus was actually the Messiah or not. He threatened their place of privilege among the people. Remember, right? Nicodemus makes it clear that they knew that Jesus was a man who had come from God, but they didn't care. In John chapter 3, verse 2, remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know, we being the religious leaders, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And yet, even though they knew this, they still ascribed the wonderful works of Jesus, his healing of the afflicted, his recovery of sight to the blind, the lame walking, the, the raising of the dead. They still ascribed all of it to his being in league with Satan. Think about how hard their blasphemous hearts must have been to have uttered such blasphemous words. It drove them crazy that Jesus didn't bend or compromise his mission to fit in their expectation, fit in with their expectations. It drove them to madness. It drove them to the place where they went out and plotted against Jesus how they might destroy him. But you see, Jesus didn't throw his lot in with these religious leaders because he wasn't concerned about position and status and place. Why did Jesus come? He came to seek and to save the lost, not to strengthen the oppressive leadership of the Pharisees. Jesus came quietly and gently and humbly to call the weary and the heavy laden to himself. Jesus came to call all the broken, all the dysfunctional, all the weary and tired, all the financially burdened, all those of low estate in the world, all the sick, all the dying, all the confused, all of you. All who come to him, and when you do come to him, if you do come to him, if you respond to this call that Jesus sends out, he will never cast you out. Our precious, wonderful Lord Jesus Christ receives every single person who truly believes in him and comes to him in faith. But the religious leaders, rather than respond positively to the message, rather than respond positively to the gospel of the kingdom that so graciously poured forth from the lips of Jesus, they called him satanic. And they poured out poisonous lies about Jesus among the crowds and they began hatching a plot to kill him. And so Jesus took it from them. They no longer deserved the privilege of hearing the clear and direct teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ about the gospel of the kingdom. He judged them by switching to parables as his main main form of public preaching and teaching. And if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that when There is a famine or a lack of the word of God available to people. That is one of the most devastating and terrible of all of our Lord's judgments against a people or a nation. When the Lord spoke through the prophet Amos, he said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. It's a devastating judgment. And in Proverbs twenty-nine, nineteen, we read this, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. You might know it as where there is no vision, the people perish. The idea here is where there is no revelation from God, clear revelation from God, people begin to go their own way. They begin to walk the road that leads to death. They cast off restraint wherever the word of God is absent. It's a devastating judgment and in switching from clear preaching and teaching to parables, Jesus is doing this exact thing pronouncing a terrible judgment upon these hard-hearted pharisees and religious leaders and this parable that he speaks here will reveal the state of the pharisees hearts and also reveal the number of different responses of the crowds so jesus sets this this teaching before them in the form of a parable And in this parable, we see four separate responses to the preaching of the gospel, only one of which is true, life-saving, life-giving faith. So look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now that we know why Jesus is speaking in parables, let's turn our attention to the parable itself. On that day after the encounter with the religious leaders, the text tells us, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. So See, great crowds are following Jesus. Great here means massive throngs of people. Thousands upon thousands of people are following Jesus to hear what he has to say, to be healed by him. They're pressing in. And there were so many people that he had to get into a boat and sit down in the boat in order to preach while the crowds, they didn't sit, they stood on the beach. And he began speaking to them in parables. And this first parable being what we commonly call the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. And in this parable, Jesus relays a profound spiritual truth with an everyday word picture. In this parable, we are introduced to a few different characters. We got the sower, who ultimately represents the Lord Jesus Christ, but also, by extension, every single one of his followers from that point to this, who live out the Great Commission by bringing the good news to the world. We are told of a seed that is sown. You got a sower sowing seed that is sown. The seed is representative of the Word of God, more specifically, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the soils symbolize the human heart and its receptivity or lack thereof to the gospel. Now, I want you to just note a couple things as we enter into this parable. First, the seed is the same in every instance. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same in every instance. He doesn't, it doesn't require our editing. It doesn't require our reshaping. It doesn't require our updating. The seed is always the same seed. The perfect life of our Lord Jesus Christ, His atoning death, His resurrection, His ascension, and by believing in Him, we can and will be forgiven of our sins and a relationship will be established with our Father in Heaven. And also, note that this is not a parable that speaks to the skill of the sower. Right? I know far too many of us Sometimes refrain from going out and speaking the gospel because we're afraid, right? What, am I, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? Or what if, what if they say something and, and I don't know how to respond to it? Well, that's not, a, that's not your problem per se. You are not good enough to preach the gospel. I'm not good enough to preach the gospel. None of us are. The power doesn't come from your words or my words. The power comes from God who goes behind your efforts to be faithful to Him and He applies it. So, you, as a sower of God's Word, you keep scattering, keep throwing the seed, keep speaking the gospel. And Jesus here will reveal four types of soil or four responses to the seed. Now, we've already said, right? In terms of the public preaching of this parable, verses 3 to 9 are what Jesus left with the crowds. That's all they heard. But Jesus explained the parable in verses 10 to 17 to the actual disciples who come and ask him, or verses 18 to 23, I mean, who come and ask him about the parable or why he speaks in parables. So look at the first of the four soils that Jesus speaks about in this parable. The first is the soil that comprises the path. You see that, right? Verse, look at verse 13, chapter 13, verse 4. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And Jesus explained the meaning of this in chapter 13, verse 19, to his disciples, saying, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This was what was sown, or this is what was sown along the path. See, the the original hearers would understand the word picture, right? They would understand the, the picture that's being painted. Maybe not the deeper spiritual significance, but they'd understand the difficulty that any seed might have penetrating the hardened and tightly packed down dirt on a path, these thoroughfares that people keep walking on, and as they walk, the ground gets harder and harder and more compact and more compact, so much so that if a sower is out throwing a seed and any seed actually lands on the path, it would simply bounce on the path and remain there, either to be trampled on by passers-by on the path or eaten up by hungry, opportunistic birds. The picture here is like those who are hardened by unbelief, who when they hear the precious life-giving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, rather than it being the fragrant aroma of life, to them it is the stench of death. When people, the, the, the soil that is the path, when they hear the good news of Christ's perfect sinless life, when they hear the good news that Jesus died a sin-bearing death that pays the penalty for the sins of anyone who truly believes in him, that by faith in Jesus Christ, he establishes a, a relationship of fatherly love between God and the true disciple, the heart that is represented by the path rebuffs all of that. It remains hardened They close their eyes to seeing. They stop up their ears to hearing. They are like the Pharisees in this text. They remain hardened. They have no desire to search for truth. And so the evil one comes and he snatches away what has been sown. And as the evil one has always done, he uses a variety of strategies and a variety of devices to keep such people in their state of impenetrable path like soil maybe the enemy will tell you this message it's too harsh the preacher just told me to stop sinning how dare that they tell me that I'm a sinner how dare this preacher up here call what I love what this society loves sinful these people who open the Bible and they preach it they're hateful spiteful bigoted and mean listen all you need to do is look inside yourself. All you need to do is love yourself and forgive yourself and express yourself. That's really what's important. Forget all this Jesus stuff. Forget all this talk about denying yourself and submitting to somebody else as if Jesus knows better than you how to run your life. These are some of the ways that the enemy snatches the seed as it falls on, these, on the hard path. The evil one will also use false teachers and sinful cultural worldviews and ideologies and he'll paint, this, the, he'll paint sin in the colors of righteousness and he'll fan your heart in the direction of sinful pleasures and life lived in the domain of darkness. And those who refuse to hear, they are outwitted by Satan because they are ignorant of his strategies to bring about their eternal death and damnation. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are seeking to destroy Jesus in our text this morning, they are the ones who, are, who fall into this category. In this parable, Jesus is speaking a condemning word to these Pharisees, a word of judgment to these Pharisees. Their hearts are best described by the hard, unaffected, unreceptive path upon which the seed of the gospel fell. Now, let me ask you, if you're here or you're watching, does this describe you? Are you the seed, or are you the path that the seed falls on and it finds unreceptive, hard, impenetrable ground? If that is you, then know this you are on very dangerous ground. And should you die in this state, you will not ascend to heaven to be with Christ where he is for eternity, but you will descend into the eternal torment and wrath of our Lord. You will face eternal damnation. So the call goes out to you this morning to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. Do not be the hardened soil. Do not close your eyes and stop up your ears. Do not refuse to understand. That's the first soil. The second soil, or the second response to the seed that is the gospel, is that of the rocky ground. You see that in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 13. It says this, Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And Jesus explained the meaning of this to his disciples in verses 20 and 21. Look at that again. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The idea here being that there are some who lack a true rootedness in Christ even though they might profess to actually love Christ. These are types who, have, who don't have roots deep enough to draw the life-sustaining living water from the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the ones who will wither when tribulation and trial comes upon them, when the sun scorches down upon them. These are the ones, and you've probably seen these people. Maybe you've been to a youth retreat when you were young, or maybe you've been to a a conference, and and the preacher's up at the front, he's like, Come to Jesus, everyone! And, And everybody starts streaming down the aisles, and they say the prayer, and they're so excited, and they say, All right, I'm a believer now. They accept the truth of the word, They accept the validity of the gospel message. Sure, Jesus died. He rose again. That's wonderful. Now, why they chose to make a profession of faith, there's a whole host of reasons. We don't know. Perhaps they were told that Jesus would solve every single one of their problems. And they're like, yes, sign me up for that. Perhaps they were swept up by some intense emotional experience as a preacher preached to them with haunting music playing behind them. Perhaps they, met a, they went to church and they met a, re, a ton of really nice people and they're like, I like all these new people. They're so nice to me. And the babysitting is free. And so they joined in by professing faith in Jesus. Perhaps they really did appreciate the message of salvation, but they, were, they weren't told about all of the other things that come with it. Bowing the knee to the to Jesus Christ as Lord, submitting the entirety of their life to obey Him, denying self, living for Him. You remember it, right? Maybe that time when you came to the Lord. You remember that? Like you you, you tell your your story, you tell your your uh, testimony about coming to the Lord. If you're anything like me, I remember when I first came. I remember when I first really believed, and I, got, I was being driven home, and when I got home, I felt like I could bounce off all the walls. I'm like running around, I'm like, yes, Jesus, 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 Jesus. I was all up for it. It was a rush of emotion, a rush of joy, a rush of excitement. But there are many for whom that when that initial joy goes away, or that initial burst of emotion wears away, or it disappears, and they can't recapture it. They drop their profession and move on. The great preacher R.C. Sproul calls this a flirtation with Christianity. It has all the earmarks of a teenage fling, doesn't it? Intense emotions when you first meet. A heated sensation of always wanting to be together. Be in the presence of that person that you have this lovesick crush on. And then you start to hate them just as quickly as you love them. You remember those? Anyone else? Did Anyone else have those experiences? I had like two when I was a teen. And such a response to the gospel has over the last decade become quite, last decades become quite common as churches and preachers and organizations all strive to make entry into the kingdom of heaven as easy as possible. Say this prayer and you're in. You can walk around with the ticket in your pocket. You know, you're saved from the fires. All you need to do is pray that prayer. In many cases, the words of Jesus to count the cost. In many cases, the words of Jesus as a call to self-denial, to bowing the knee in submission to him, of handing over the entirety of your life to him. In many cases, preparing those who are hearing this message for the response that the world will have towards such a profession, it's all lacking. True discipleship and true following of Christ requires a counting of the cost. Jesus made that clear. True faith in Christ requires self-denial, which runs contrary to a world that is obsessed with self-expression. True faith requires self-sacrifice, requires obedient service, and requires even suffering. But the fair-weather convert, as John Owen calls it, the temporary Christian, might be enthusiastic in their response to Jesus at first, full of passion, full of emotion for a season. But such a temporary profession is not real. It's not true saving faith because it always withers in the heat of trial In the heat of adversity, such a faith is not true faith. It is simply a temporary, shallow, rootless counterfeit that dies just as quickly as it sprung up. All who truly name the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior will be tested. All will encounter tribulation, meaning adversity or trouble or affliction, on account of your profession. Is this you? Are you this morning at this point in your life where you're considering dropping your faith because it's just too hard for you? Because of the difficulties of living as a Christian in this world? Are you at this point where it seems like the sun is scorching on you and you just don't have this life-giving connection to the Lord Jesus Christ that will sustain you? Is the sun scorching down on you and withering you? Because all who name Jesus, as he says here, will endure some level of persecution. In the word here, persecution, in this context, actually means the hunting down of a Christian to torture or force them into apostasy or the renunciation of faith. Now, we might not yet be hunted down and tortured, but we are living in a day when we are subtly and overtly pressured to simmer down, to keep your faith quiet, to deconstruct it, to abandon it, as the world increasingly looks at the people of Christ with disdain. And it is the rootless, false professor of faith, with no real connection to the Lord Jesus, who will, because of these pressures, fall away. You see that phrase? They will abandon their profession permanently. And this temporary profession might reveal itself in a quick rejection... I've known, R.C. Sproul was t- told a story in the commentary of, of when he came to Saving Faith, and that night he had a burst of emotion, and the next morning he was super excited, but the guy who was with him that night, who also gave his life to the Lord Jesus, the next day was like, eh, I just did that last night. It might be that quick. Or it could take years. But eventually, inevitably, all who are not connected to the vine all with shallow roots will fall away and reveal themselves to have been rocky soil all along. Know this, a temporary faith is a false faith. And so hear the words of the Apostle Paul to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. The fact that you're still living and breathing means that it is a grace of the Lord giving you an opportunity to have your roots go deeper, to connect them into the Lord Jesus Christ, and so be able to sustain and endure during times of tribulation and trial. first soil is on the path. The second soil is the rocky ground. The third soil is among thorns. You see that in verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Jesus explained the meaning of this to the disciples in verse 22. Look at verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Anyone who's tried to grow flowers, anyone who's tried to grow vegetables or food, know the damage that weeds can cause to the good fruit you're trying to grow, right? They choke out your desired plant. Weeds are actually spectacularly resilient. As a farmer, you're consistently fighting against them because they're always popping up, right? And weeds and thorns, if the gardener is not consistently on guard, can overtake the ground and choke everything else out. Weeding is a relentless duty, a constant duty. They always seem to rest in the soil and even the smallest portion. You ever notice that? You can pick out a a weed and you think, all right, you just leave like this little sliver of the root and boom, it's right back the next day. Like how does that happen? Stinking weeds. They'll grow and they'll suck nutrients from other plants and they'll spring out from nowhere. And in this context, Jesus said the thorns or the weeds in question represent, look at it, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. These are the weeds or the thorns that choke the word. The cares of the world, whether it's worry or anxiety or anger at the direction of the world. or whether it's love for the comforts of the world or the pleasures of the world, it's all the same. Preoccupation with the world and its cares, to be so concerned and so disturbed and so agitated and troubled by what's happening in this world that you can't meditate on or rest in or delight in God's word or love God's people is to be on the path to disaster. If this is you, you are being choked by the cares of this world. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it seems to me like all we talk about these days are the cares of the world. I hear more about what's going on in the world than about the Lord Jesus Christ who sits enthroned above it all. He's still in charge. Nothing's changed. Nothing catches him off guard. And yet here we are so angered and anxious that everything in the world isn't progressing the way we would like it to. And look what Jesus said happens to those who are taken in or choked by the cares of this world. It says it proves unfruitful. That's one of the most terrifying terms I can imagine in Scripture to be a plant that stands in the garden and to bear no fruit. That's the, the epitome of self-deception, isn't it? It chokes the, the word so that it proves unfruitful. Now what becomes of the unfruitful? Jesus told us in another parable in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 6, we read this. And he told this parable, Jesus. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. See what happens to the fruitless tree. It gets cut down. But the good news in this text is that the man who planted the fig tree got a little bit of time another year to dig around it and to see fruit grow by tending to it same is true for you if you are the fruitless tree standing in the garden there will come a time when you will be cut down but at this point the lord jesus christ calls out to you you can be fruitful tree Care for the tree. And on the other side of the coin, it's not just the cares of the world, but also the deceitfulness of riches. You see that? Being overly concerned with the riches of the world also chokes the word. Because riches are deceitful, aren't they? If you aren't careful, they will fatten your heart. Meaning, they will bring you to the same position as the Pharisees Where it says, This people's heart, remember verse 15, this people's heart has grown dull. That phrase actually means their hearts are fat. And with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes, they have closed. So listen to me here. Do not be deceived. If you are thinking to yourself at this point, if I only had a little bit more, if I only had a little bit more money, a little bit more stuff, I'd be more happy you are right now being deceived by riches. Because what did the Lord Jesus Christ tell us in the Sermon on the Mount in one of his clear teachings? He said this, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The Lord will take care of you. The Lord has not brought you, child of God, this far just to abandon you. So don't let riches of the world deceive you and bring you to unfruitfulness. Don't let the cares of the world and anxiety and trouble over them bring you to the place where you are unable to rest in and delight in God's word or love God's people. Instead, hear and truly believe the word of God. And that's the last the fourth and final soil. The path The rocky soil, the thorny soil, and now the fourth is this, finally, the good soil. As he said in verse 8, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus explained it in verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The good soil is the heart that truly understands and believes the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and brings forth fruit to the glory of God. And what kind of fruit are we talking about? It's the fruit of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit living in you by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then the fruit of the Spirit is the expected outcome of that true and saving faith. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now while the yield might be different for each of the, each of us, and we'll struggle in varying degrees with each of these things, this is the relentless progression of the Christian life. We are moving into the imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ and growing in our love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. The fruit of a true believer, the fruit of the, the good soil, should not be difficult to see. It should be notable. Listen, I have a tree in my backyard. It's a peach tree. You know how I know that the tree in my backyard is a peach tree? Peaches! There are peaches on the tree. Lots and lots of peaches. Obvious and apparent peaches. Everyone who looks at that tree can see the peaches on the tree and know, hey, this is a peach tree. For the good soil, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, these should be in your life as apparent as the peaches on my peach tree are to everyone who looks at it. So think about your life. Are you bearing fruit for the Lord? Are you growing in Christ-likeness, growing in joy, growing in peace? Now listen, I don't want you to sit and ask yourself and answer that question yourself. What I want you to do is find someone that you know, trust, and love, and ask them, do I exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in my life? Because we can deceive ourselves, right? We can tell ourselves, yes, oh yes, yes. But no, find someone you love do you see, and ask them, do you see the fruits of salvation in my life? Where can I grow? What do I have to work on? Which of the, these four soils best describes you? Are you represented by the path, hard and rebellious? If so, Satan is having a field day with you, snatching the seed as it lands. Do not let him steal from you. Do not let him win and ultimately kill and destroy you. Instead, cry out to the Lord for salvation. You can become good soil by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you best described as the rocky soil, rootless, temporary, ready to abandon your faith when the going gets tough? You too can become good soil by turning to Jesus in faith. The tribulations of the world are nothing in comparison to the joy that awaits all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you best described as thorny soil? The word proves ineffective and unfruitful in your life because you are so taken by the cares of this world. You're, f- you're fooled by the deceit of riches. You can become good soil by crying out to Jesus in faith as well. Jesus is king. Nothing in the world catches him off guard. He rules over every detail. And money? Money? There is no comparison between the riches of the world and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the riches that that brings to your life. So I pray that each and every one of us might be the good soil into which the seed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ lands and bear fruit to his glory and the salvation of your soul. Father, we thank you for this word. We love you and we honor you and we know that you have given us this word as a blessing to us, as a warning to us, as an encouragement to us, as an exhortation to us. And I ask that as we hear and the Spirit applies what we've heard this morning to our hearts, that you would grow us in Christ-likeness. For those who've never made a profession of faith, help them to see the beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those teetering on the precipice of abandoning faith, I pray that you would strengthen them. For those who who are living unfruitfully, I pray that you would fix the soil and tend to the tree so that they would produce fruitfulness, so that you would be glorified as everyone looks and sees the fruit that is born in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.